Thank you, Bethany. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Because God is one, because he is a single deity, he is not one among many gods, as Susan pointed out. He says, since I am one God and I am your God, you are to love me with everything you have. You're to gather all of your resources and you are to love me singly as I am a single God. We have enjoyed the, um, the Bible Project little tutorials and today as we move into this little piece of the Shema Yisrael, let's learn again about what it means to love from the Hebrew perspective as we see this short video. How is it possible to love God as we ought? I, I want to come back to the, the verse that uh, was at the end of that little fi film clip. From 1 John 4, verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. What I'd like to talk about today is that the whole ability to love God, um, the whole commitment to love God, our propensity to love God, is, is made possible or even imaginable because of a certain connection between God's love and our love. So 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. I think that's not just a logical obligation. It's not since God loved us, we should love him. Because when we receive it like that, we, we might just sort of, lift our hands up and say, well, how? How, how do you love God? I, I think more than a logical obligation, it's actually a living opportunity. Similarly, in 1 John chapter 4, and that, that's the chapter that uh, all of this today is kind of couched in, we read this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love is from God. So this connection, this um, opportunity to love God must always be occasioned by and caused by and fueled by his love for us. God loved us and so we may love at all and we may love God. We love him because he first loved us and we'll see another verse that talks about how much he loved us. But if, if loving God results from being loved by God, where might the struggle be that, um, that kind of shows up in the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil? If, if it's important that God loves us so we can love God or so we should love God, then where, where might the battle show up in, in trying to live obedient, faithful lives as followers of Christ? Uh, we, we can see, and we don't have to look very far from our own lives or among those who live nearby, that the battle that very, very often takes place inside the human heart is the battle of believing or knowing or experiencing that God does love us. So if it's important to know that God loves us and to know his love, 
in order for us to be able to reciprocate to love him where where might the fight go on well the fight will go on in really experiencing the first part of the if then if god loves us we can love god because love is from god if we love at all it's because that love has come from him and if we love god it's because we have thoroughly experienced his love for us therefore we can love him so where might the battle show up we find in in the text of scripture that we have three enemies as i've mentioned our enemies are the world the flesh and the devil and so we might really anticipate that from those sources from the world or the flesh or the devil there would be a fight about this <clears throat> this notion or the experience of being loved by god and so we might honestly say, I don't think I'm loved by God. In fact, we, we may say, I don't, I don't think I'm even known by God. I don't think he pays any attention to me. So the second part of this is kind of unreachable for me because I'm really having a hard time with the first part because if all of this loving for others and for God comes from God and is because he loves me, if I don't feel that, if I don't experience that, if I don't believe that, what's the point in going on to the then part of the if then? Um, I, I'm not sure if you remember probably two or three years ago, um, there's a popular singer named Lauren Daigle who has a song called You Say. And the words in this song, and it's interesting that it has sort of crossed over between uh, Christian music and secular music and different genres of music, but the words begin by saying, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. When we think about this whole notion of God loving us, knowing we are loved by God, or feeling loved by God, I think there are two things um, that are thrown at us by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The two things are these, I'm not good enough to be loved by God, or I have, little aside here, Annabeth and I have, been looking for good series to watch and we came across one called McLeod's Daughters and it's an Australian um, series long long series so if you're looking for some good wholesome I think fairly wholesome um, TV to watch there's an expression I'd never heard before but it shows up over and over and over again Australians apparently say I've stuffed up and it'll be an apology. I've stopped, stuffed up here, I've stuffed up there, I keep on stuffing up, and whatever it is, stuffed up has for me kind of graphically, um, you know, explained this whole notion of, I have messed up, I have failed. Oh my goodness, what have I done? That sort of thing. And, and so the second thing that we struggle with about really being loved by God is to say not only I'm not good enough to be loved by God, but I have stuffed up too much to be loved by God. Um, 
I, I don't know, there may be other impediments to the whole experience of God's love. But if, if having an understanding, grasping, believing, experiencing God's love is critical so that we can reciprocate and love him, then the world and the flesh and the devil will come at us with those two ideas and, and maybe more. The world, as we try to compare ourselves with other people and we look around and we say, I'm not good enough. We might say, I'm, I'm not, you know, fill in the blank enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. Um, I'm not successful enough. I'm not rich enough. And there are all kinds of words by, by which we would sort of find ourselves drifting down into this comparison to the rest of the people around us and the world around us and say, I, this whole idea that God loves me, I don't, he can possibly love me. I'm not lovely enough. I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not any of those things enough for God to really love me. And then the second one, when we dig way down into it, many of us simply shamefacedly say, it's not possible that God loves me because I have stuffed up too much. I've done too many things. There's no way he could forgive me, never mind love me. Because what I have done is beyond the pale. And I think many times as I talk to folks about this, I, I can almost see in people's faces that, yeah, that's me. You may be able to promise that uh, that person or this other person can know that he or she is completely forgiven, but I can't. There's no way God could for forgive me what I have done. You don't know what I've done. I, I've wondered if there could ever be sort of an amnesty day when churches could all of a sudden for one day forget everything that everyone had done. And we could all relate to one another with a completely clean slate. That, that's actually theologically and practically true. Because in Christ we have been forgiven. But all of us have this list of things that keep on popping up. And either the world, as it watches us and says, oh, look at that. You just took a big tumble there. The flesh... Um, knows that we are vulnerable in various ways and so the flesh will trip us up so if the world around us has not pointed something out maybe our own flesh our own ability um, speaks up and says wait a minute how, how can you claim that God loves you because you're not good enough you keep on trying you keep on failing um, you keep on saying I'll never do that again and yet you do I had a pastor who once said uh, in a sermon, if you want to live a victorious life, here's how you can do it. You need to stand before the mirror and thinking about the sins that you have committed or the temptations that you face or the ways in which you regularly fail God, look in the mirror and say to yourself, I will die before I ever commit that sin again. And I thought, are you kidding me? Uh, go ahead and try because I think there'd be a lot of dead people around us because the flesh is not strong enough. The flesh can't, can't muster the ability by sheer willpower not to do the things that we trip over. 
And then if it wasn't bad enough that the world was kind of pointing things out and the flesh is surfacing things, then the devil himself is called the accuser. And that is one of his primary roles, self-appointed roles, where he accuses us before God. Uh, And we have the story of Job, which is an interesting little drama in the cosmic sense. When Job shows up with the other angels in heaven, I don't know how that happens exactly, but God says, where have you been? And Satan says, well, I've been walking back and forward on the face of the earth. And God asks him a telling question. He said, have you thought about my servant Job? And the inference is that he has been looking for people that he can point fingers about. And he is wanting to come to God and say, well, I've noticed so-and-so. And they failed. And they failed again. And God says, well, what about my servant Job? He hasn't failed. He's a moral, upright person. And then uh, Satan and and God get into a little kind of a deal-making scenario that teaches us incredible things about suffering and um, God's patience and Satan's activities. But it, it points to this role that the accuser has. He comes and he says, failure, 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 failure. And he knows that if he's able to have us tumble over our failures, we will have a terrible time raising our faces towards God and believing or accepting that he loves us. And so the whole premise of the Shema Israel is that um, since our God is one, we are to love him singly. Then we come to the New Testament and we find that there is a powerful provision about how that can actually be true. If we experience the love of God for us, then we're able to experience our love for God. But if, if there is any kind of a breach, if there's any kind of discontinuity between the if God loves us, then we are able to love God, then we will have fallen down and we will find ourselves singing the song in my mind, there are these enemies that keep on telling me I'm not enough. Either that I am not good enough or that I have failed just too much so God can't love me. God couldn't love me. God wouldn't love me. What's very interesting in the passage in First John 4 is that in talking about the whole love of God for us scenario. Um, Chapter 4, verse 10 says this, in this is love, not that we love God, right? So that's not how it all starts, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, isn't it interesting that in in the lovely chapter about the glorious love of God, John just inserts this provision that God has made. He says that it's not that we loved God. And, and John's theology is, as, as we understand, that God is the source of love. God is love. And if anyone loves, um, it's because God has enabled that love. Uh, he, he also has some great teaching about the implications 
that if we say we love God and don't love one another, well, we still don't understand how, how all of this fits together because that, that couldn't be possible. But if we're, if we're grasping what love is, we're grasping what God is like. And so tucked into the middle of all of that, John has this lovely little piece of theology where he says, it's, it's true we didn't love God, but he loved us and coupled with his love for us, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so there's, there's your uh, assignment for this week. Learn how to say the word propitiation or learn what it means. What does it mean? It, it goes to the heart of those voices in our minds. The voices that say, I'm not good enough. The voices that say, I have failed too often. God says, I know. And that's not the point. The point is that I have sent my son to be the propitiation for your sins. Propitiation, another translation would call it atoning sacrifice. And it's a really huge theology of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, It's the theology of atonement in the Old Testament where there are all kinds of sacrificial provisions that would atone for the people's sins. And to atone for their sins, in even in the Hebrew term that is used, doesn't mean anything more than cover their sins. And so the sins of all of the people who lived and tried to be faithful to Jehovah, those sins were committed and they were acknowledged and they were covered by sacrifices. Um, But the New Testament tells us that um, this one sacrifice was offered by one person for all time for all that would put an end to the whole thing. So the theology of atonement comes into the New Testament to mean much more than just cover over, but it means to send away, to dismiss, um, to abolish and what God has done, and John is citing this as evidence of God's love for us, what God has done is that he has completely obliterated our sins. There's not a sacrifice we need to bring um, to the temple on Shabbat. There's not something we need to do on a daily basis to bring to the priest, because God has done one thing forever by his son, and that is he has absolutely forgiven our sins. That's how John would want to step into the conversation in my mind or in your mind. And if I were to say, God could not love me because I'm not good enough, John would say, just a minute, I know you're not good enough. John would confess that he's not good enough. Um, And the Holy Spirit would want us to grasp that from what the Bible says, that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. There is no one, according to the Psalms, that does good, truly does good. We're all sort of wayward. We've all gone off to the side. And so even in in the terminology in the Bible for sin, sometimes sin means missing the mark. And, you know, it's like 
you know, an archer taking a bow and shooting an arrow at a target and missing. Sin is like that. Uh, Sin is also, one of the words used about sin is trespassing, which means to deliberately pass a standard or to deliberately go where we're forbidden to go, to, to deliberately do something. So, those are the two things that are are talking to me in in my mind that I can't do what I should do and the things I shouldn't do I do that's what we prayed just a few minutes ago in the general confession Um, we confess father that we have done things we ought not to have done and we have left undone things that we ought to have done and so what do we do about all of that? Do we say, well, God could not love people who would admit that about themselves. We say, but in Christ, all of those things are forgiven. We've been forgiven the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done. We've been forgiven about the things that we've left undone that we should have done. Um, we're able to, to come to the one place, which is the love of God in Christ Jesus, that has brought us the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation, the the complete forgiveness of our sins. And so John would say, so so what's your objection now? You you say you don't think God could love you? Well, what a high-minded thing for you to dare to say because the reasons that you think God can't love you or doesn't love you have been dealt with by God from his very love. And so the if-then sides of this understanding they're perfectly matched because God has loved us singly and he invites us to love him we love because he first loved us and so whatever battles go on in our minds whatever fights there are in our internal lives uh, we need to grapple with the truth that God does love us and how do we how do we do that? How do we how do we get to the point of experiencing or believing that God loves us? Many many times that has been the stuff of conversations I've had with people in in churches as as a pastor, where where people might even think that academically they can believe that God has forgiven them, that God has accepted them. But it just doesn't feel that way. And it just feels more as though um, they're escaping God's love or God's love is escaping them or missing them and they're not feeling the love of God. Well, how important it is that we understand, that we grasp, that we apprehend God's love for us so that we can love him. We can't muster our love for him at all. And so it's important that the love that we have for him flows out of an experience of the love that he has for us. So how are we going to get into our heads and into our hearts and find them agreeing about the love of God for us and being set free by the love of God? I think it's it's important to, to think of how God would join up with us to tell us that he loves us. So it's not enough for me to tell you the theory of 
love uh, as I am now about it coming from God and necessarily coming from God so that we can love him back. Um, how, how, can, how can that be true for me and for you? I, I think, first of all, just realizing where the fight comes from, the, the world and the flesh and the devil, and say, okay, I, there, there's, a, there's a battle on my hands. It's a battle to, to grasp God's love for me. So, first of all, I, I think I need to, in a sense, bring my right friends to, to the fight. Um, and the friends that, that I think of are, are the love of God itself. The love of God is an entity and in a very interesting way, it's, it's one of the very few terms that would be used to actually essentially describe God. So another is that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. But I think maybe the only other word that would totally describe God, not just be an, an attribute of God's, is that God is love. So there's the truth of who the person is whom we acknowledge to be our God and our sovereign. So to, to grasp that somehow, to get my arms around it and say, this is not just, you know, um, a part of faith. It's not just uh, an aspect of believing. It's actually the sum total of Christian faith, love. It, 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 it is in its entirety um, something that will inform everything that is part of believing. But But that's still more conceptual, more, more an idea. But we do well to keep on studying it. And, and as you're reading the Bible, keep on noticing how much in there describes God and his love for us. And if the Bible wants to claim anything on you, it is that God loves you. So the fight may be going on, but, but here's what the Bible claims. No matter what you say, God loves you. Um, we're told silly little things in the Bible about him knowing the number of hairs on our head. We're, we're told that God notices every sparrow who falls and we have story after story after story that says, do you get it? That God is love. Um, the story of David and Mephibosheth is a lovely story of this little boy who thought nothing of himself um, and yet David found him in the corner of his universe and even though David had been responsible for his father and grandfather's death, David called Mephibosheth to his palace and Mephibosheth thought that David would take his life as well. And David actually seated him at the king's table and he gave him a king's robe. And it's a lovely story in history, but it's a big story. It's a story of God and his love for us. And, you know, it's like God has to keep saying to us, do you get it? That this is what I am like. Everything else is important, but it, it, it finds its meaning in the context of my loving you, my loving humankind. I, I am filled with my love for you. 
the second is this notion of having a friend at court. Um, this is a, a poor, a very poor example of this. Um, but having the right friend at court or having the right friend in the fight is, is important. My three boys um, have matured more than, well, they've matured some. And one of them, as, as they were teenagers, used to love to, to show up and chirp at people. He, he just had lots to say. And he would sort of pick fights or arguments or whatever. And, and once the fight was on, um, and, and somebody maybe even physically threatened a fight, he would simply call his two brothers in and say, I want you to meet my brothers. And the other two were a little brawnier than he was, so he, he could often just kind of smirk and, and sneak away because he had brought somebody stronger than him. When, when, when this fight goes on for us, we bring stronger allies to the fight when we understand who it is that comes along with us. And those who come along are God himself who says, I am love. You, you dare not tell my child that he is not loved by me. Jesus comes along and he says, um, whatever fight you have brought to to." my joint heir here you better take it away because I have already paid the complete payment for whatever he did wrong and then the spirit comes along and in the fight that is going on in the inner me the spirit speaks the truth and here's where today I think my prayer would be that what we're trying to grasp here today would not only be just sort of intellectually gotten but what we've talked about before about how the spirit is a realm in which transactions are made by God with humankind you know the spirit is one place and the soul is another place and the body is another place but we we're given kind of clues about the spirit telling our spirits things and my prayer would be that this notion that God loves you, not this notion, but that this truth, that God loves you, that the Spirit would come to the fight in your mind with you and would not go to your mind to argue with you about you, you, you being better than you think you are or being more forgiven than you thought you were. But the, the Spirit would come and he, he, he would just say, you are a child of God. You are a son of God. You are thoroughly accepted in the beloved. You are thoroughly forgiven by the blood of Christ. You are thoroughly empowered by the Spirit in you. And so, I, again, speaking Spirit to Spirit, we need to know that we have been made new creations, that in our true beings, um, we don't need to fight this fight of being worthy or being forgiven. We need to grasp it in, in, in our new person because 
what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians is that if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. And, and so, you know, trying to fight the fight with my mind isn't going to be as successful as um, apprehending what the Spirit is telling me is true. And so my prayer is that, that we could really apprehend this love of God that he has for us. There's a, a lovely hymn that was written in 1917. And the, the first two verses go like this. Um, F.M. Lehman was the person who wrote the hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saint and angel's song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Those two verses are lovely, but there's a third verse that's a little different. And people have often wondered about the different character of, of this third verse. And the person who wrote the hymn tells the story of coming across the words of the third verse. And the words of the third verse were found on the walls of what we would now call mental institutes, a mental institution. When a patient in that institution had died and they went to clean the room vacated and prepare it for another one, they found on the wall this verse that Lehman then used for the third verse of his hymn. When one person tried to investigate this, he went to a, a Jewish rabbi, and this Jewish rabbi, who was um, well-known in London and knew Jewish poetry and 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 the writings down through the years, he recognized that the words that were on the wall came from a rabbi from the 11th century, way, way back. And somehow or other, this, this, this person in his mental anguish in the dying days or some time prior to them came across these words from this rabbi and wrote them on the wall. And then Laman made them his third verse in The Love of God. He says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. We love because he first loved us. I can't explain how to apprehend the love of God, how to experience the love of God. 
I have little thoughts here and there. But the magnitude of the love of God is so overwhelming. I mean, this, this verse, imagine this, you know, an ocean, and every drop of that ocean ink um, to be written uh, with the stalks turned into quills on a parchment from sky to sky, um, way back, centuries and centuries and centuries ago, someone was trying to grasp the enormity of the love of God and could only think about how voluminous it could imaginably be. And then he said, it couldn't even begin to describe the love of God. There is a lovely verse in uh, one of Paul's letters in Ephesians. He says, I'm praying this for you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. All I can tell you today is that God loves you with an enormous love. That Christ has forgiven you by his work and fully accepted you. God loves you and out of the experience of his love, he invites you to love him. Listen, Israel. The Lord is one. Part of his oneness is his singleness of love devotion, grace, and mercy. And so, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And by the way, love your neighbor as yourself.